The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I'm continuing the talk, second talk on this chapter 18, related to ritual and imagination. So how do we own this responsibility? How do we actively, intelligently, wholeheartedly learn how to be in this world where we're constructing, where we're using symbols and forms, routines, rituals, and they create meaning? And even if we're dragging our feet through the day, you know, and stumbling and uh, irritated by things, that is also a ritual. You know, and the way that we perceive the different objects that are frustrating us or irritating us, that's just part of the ritual we happen to be living. This is the ritual we call, you know, life is a bummer. And, you know, this is how we carry out, perform that ritual. You know, dragging our feet, mumbling, complaining under our breath. And then that ritual leads to certain results. You know, like being frustrated or feeling like we've missed our life or that we've been damned or something. So how can we participate in a world that's constructed, learn how to play, skillfully play, skillfully participate, so we can construct meaning that leads to real freedom, leads to release, leads to compassion. And that's, that's what the... That's what Jack Kornfield says. Last week I mentioned that each chapter he discerns or distills a particular principle of Buddhist psychology. So in this chapter it's something like whatever we constantly visualize affects the body and mind, the body and consciousness. So let's visualize, let's ritualize freedom and compassion. Why not? I mean, if we're constructing the world, the reality we live in, why not construct a reality of freedom and release and compassion and kindness? So why not? So how do we do that? One thing we'd want to do is we'd want to just start by, I mean, like I said, we understand that, you know, the use of visualization or symbol or form, ritual, it just holds meaning. So we have to decide, well, what sort of meaning do we want to work with? And terms like freedom and even compassion might be a little too general. You might want a more concrete list. You might want to find just a place to begin. What particular human value is relevant now in your life that you might want to practice visualizing, imagining, ritualizing? I mean, that's a good question for us. You know, is it kindness? Is it truthfulness? Is it resoluteness? Is it generosity? Is it some commitment to non-harming? Is it patience, equanimity, energy, effort, renunciation, wisdom? 
these are the ten paramis. Uh, in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, there are ten perfections of the heart, or paramis, which means these are the qualities of a heart that make one a Buddha. Or, I think the more technical translation, one the qualities of heart that carry one across to the other shore. The Buddha uses this image often as of a flood, that the great danger is this flood, this sometimes this flood of sensuality. But it's not just sensuality, it's the attachment or identification with one's experience. That's our flood. We get attached to what we see, to what we think, to what we're experiencing. And that attachment leads to reactivity, which leads to more attachment and reactivity over and over again. And so what carries us across that endless pattern of attachment and reactivity? Or the cultivation or the development, or maybe even better, the uncovering of these qualities, these wholesome qualities. To simplify it, you could say the wholesome quality of wisdom or non-greed and non-delusion and non-anger. Or you can talk about it in terms of these ten qualities. But one way or another, we have to start somewhere. So what particular human value, universal value, would you like to use to create your reality? And then the question is, you know, well, how do you go about it? And a lot we can just borrow from the rituals. Maybe they're dirty or dusty or need some refurbishing, but there are already in our lives, in our culture, a lot of beautiful rituals and symbols and ways of imagining and ways of visualizing goodness, you know, a wholesome way of being. You know, just taking the first of the ten paramis is generosity. And this is a universal value. And, and human beings in different ways have been ritualizing generosity probably since the beginning of time. I remember a long time ago in the 80s, I read uh, a couple books on the native people in the West Coast and Northwest. And one ritual they had when one of the families developed a lot of wealth and in order, they, they understood that culturally, they understood, you know, over the generations that uh, it's not uncommon for human beings to be envious when some people have a lot more than other people than they do. So they, they ritualize it. Whenever somebody had a particularly good hunt or whatever and started accumulating more than the rest, it was just part of the culture to throw a big party, to spend a lot of your wealth by having a big feast or a big party. We can just see how that understanding of generosity took care of everybody. Not just the people who didn't have, but it also made it better for the people who had a lot. And we have Christmas, which is almost completely broken, but there are <laughs> elements in the ritual that people can dust off. You hear about it every once in a while. I mentioned uh, on Sunday when I was giving this talk, you know, my brother and family goes to a church down in uh, southern suburbs, big one of those big mega churches. It sounds pretty nice, this church, this particular church. And uh, one of the things they do 
is uh, the church raises money and then purchases a bunch of food stuff, I think mostly, uh, non-perishable food stuff, and then they buy all the packing equipment, and then for several weekends prior to Christmas, you know, a lot of the community gets together in a big hall, and kids and parents and, you know, different people, they're all packing this stuff up and shipping it overseas to different places where people don't have very much. They really appreciate it. You know, this is like a lot of fun. can be a lot of fun taking care of people and just that, that feeling. So the question, you know, what is our way of ritualizing generosity? Like, if that experience of generosity, feeling generous, feeling expansive in that way, like we have something to give, something of value to give, that we're not so needy that there's nothing to give, not so fearful that there's nothing to give. How do we ritualize it? Like, how do we ritualize the interactions when we are meeting people who are asking for money? Like on the stoplights, where sometimes there are people waiting with a sign. Or when we're asked in different ways, through a letter or phone call, to support some organization, some nonprofit, for example. What's our ritual? <laughs> it's embarrassing, isn't it? Often, I don't know about you, but like my ritual, like, you know, I, I ritualize my answers, you know. Oh, I don't give when I'm asked. <laughs> that was. <laughs> I noticed I had that attitude. It's like, oh, I, I don't appreciate being put on the defensive. You know, as, as if it's that person's fault for me being defensive, for me being uncomfortable, you know, having to make a decision. I'd rather make a decision when I don't feel pressure, you know, which means I'll never make the decision. Or, um, you know, even like this is all for me, with a long-time strategy, is, uh, okay, I, I now I see that I'm being asked to give, but I don't feel exactly comfortable giving in this situation, so I'm going to give somewhere else. And that sort of uh, felt right for a while. You know, So I used to then, when I got home, I'd put money aside. Even though I didn't give money to that person, I'd put money aside, and then after a while, when I'd accumulated, I'd give it all to some food shop or to some place that feeds people or puts people up who don't have a home. And I'm not, you know, I don't know the right way, but, but I think if we engage the ritual consciously, if we're really awake to our rituals around generosity, then we learn. We learn, like, how to create a beautiful reality for ourselves. Because, you know, like, I tried a lot of things, and I created a certain reality, and none of them felt very good. So, you know, what's a different kind of reality? And then you know how it is. Then we eventually do give, but that doesn't feel good either because we're giving because we were forced to give, because it was too painful not to give, too embarrassing or whatever to not give. So that doesn't feel right either. So we can't escape it. Being uh, distracted or unaware doesn't work. Controlling it doesn't work. We have to transform every part of our life into something positive and beautiful. Otherwise, 
it's going to be something not positive and not beautiful. And that will be our reality. And there's nobody else who can transform our life. We have to do it ourselves. We have to work with the elements of our life, the ideas, the symbols, the actions. It's like we have this, you know, like a very complicated or sophisticated Lego set. And we get to create things. Now, they can create amazing things with Legos. I don't know if you've seen recently. If you don't have kids in your life, Legos have gotten very sophisticated and amazing. But, you know, our world is even more sophisticated. It's amazing what we can create. We can create very elaborate, hellish realms for ourselves to live in. And we can also create really beautiful realms to live in. I was at a memorial service on Saturday. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you have been at memorial services, been around people, families where there's been a death. And, you know, this is one of the places where there is a lot of ritual, a lot of form, use of symbols. You know, we bring a lot of meaning to different aspects of that whole process of somebody dying. And it's amazing how this is like an example of how hellish some of those experiences can be and how transforming and beautiful death can be depending on the meaning that everybody brings to it. It doesn't mean that there isn't sadness or the pain of loss or but it can also be quite beautiful. This particular person, this particular memorial service, it was so wonderful to get to know somebody for this person I didn't know very well. And just to get a sense of people loving this person. And you know, a lot of the service was uh, unpacking the goodness of this person, sort of painting a picture. It was such a wonderful public ritual to reflect on how a life could be quite beautiful as opposed to being critical. You know, we could spend an afternoon any one of our with any one of our lives, you know, if we had a good slideshow, candid camera from all those times in our life when we were really mean and greedy and lustful and hateful, you know, we could have a sense of a world we don't want to live in. We do this a lot, you know, with the way we watch and consume news. We are imagining, visualizing, ritualizing exactly the world we don't want to live in. How many times in the last week or month have we constructed a world that frightened us? You know, by just what we're paying attention to, the meaning we're bringing to it, like the different symbols that we're fixated on or attending to. So we can, you know, uh, choose a few of these. You know, we can choose the, the human value, the universal value of integrity or not this commitment to non-harming. Like, how can we ritualize this? One of the ways, um, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, one of the ways we do this is, you know, 
reciting the five precepts. The Buddha offered five precepts for lay people, undertaking the training to refrain from killing living beings or harming living beings, undertaking the training to refrain from taking things that aren't given to us, undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, undertaking the training to refrain from false speech, harsh speech, slanderous speech, idle speech, undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind, dulling the mind through drugs, alcohol, and other, you know, just the other ways we dull out. And we can ritualize that. We can, like, paint that on a wall. You know, imagine having that in our living room wall. You, nowadays, if you go in somebody's house and they've got some spiritual teaching, sometimes it gives us the eebie-jeebies, like, oh, this is a religious person, you know? Because we, one of the rituals we have is that this sort of idea we repeat to ourselves that rituals are dangerous, you know, because it leads to a blindness. You know, that person is blindly under the influence of this particular you know, structure, this particular belief system. And of course it's true. You can we can use ritual, we can use various religious, spiritual or philosophical forms, ethical forms, to become real rigid and fundamental. Or we can use ritual forms, routines in our life to really bring us I you know it's hard to say, but right into reality into what's actually important. And so instead of just rejecting the way people use life to create rigidity, you know, that becomes a rigid form itself, doesn't it? We become just as fundamental by rejecting what we understand as fundamental. That is such a fundamental point of view. All we'd have to do is actually get to know the people we point our fingers at saying that they're fundamental to realize that they're trying to live a creative life as best they can to really get to their edge where they're learning about how to be happy, learning how to be free. And some of them are doing a lot better job than some of us in terms of really understanding how to be happy, how to create a world where the heart is released, is alive with love, is alive with freedom. It's interesting how we go in different... I've done this many times in my life, from uh, sort of this swing from really an over-identification, over-dependence on form, trying to get something solid and permanent with my rituals, with my forms, with my beliefs, and then rejecting it as because it's heavy, you know, and it begins to stink, and then you let it all go, and it's sort of a nihilistic form, but we don't see that as a form, but that's hollow, so then we, so we need, I think the, the Buddhist approach is to be very pragmatic about ritual, not idealistic, it's really all about cause and effect. So when you use forms, if you get yourself a Buddhist statue or some kind of statue that symbolizes some human value that 
you deeply respect, like calm, like ease, like wisdom, clear seeing, you know, whatever it might be. If you get something that represents that for you, the idea is not to get confused by the symbol or the ritual. Maybe you actually bow down to the symbol, you know, like a lot of people do. I do it when no one's looking. <laughs> Some people do it. I saw Venerable John Paul when he came in today, bowed down, which is very common for not just monastics, but devout lay people, certainly in Asia. Bowing is one of the common rituals in Buddhism as it is in so many other religious traditions. But, you know, the idea is not to get confused by that form, by that ritual, but to understand that I'm, I know what I'm doing, you know. There is this human value I deeply aspire to, to be awake, to be free, to be compassionate. So when I bow down, when I put my forehead down on the ground or my whole body down on the ground or whatever you do, or just put your hands together, or just an inward gesture, you know, whatever feels right for you. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're remembering this human value I aspire to. This is the reality I wish to create and live in. This is what's of real value. So we're actively, intentionally entering this creative world we live in. We're not getting caught in being frustrated by how fluid the world is. If we live in a fluid world, let's learn to live in that fluid world. If we live in a world that's being co-authored by our minds, let's actively, wholeheartedly create something worth living in. Instead of just letting it happen according to our habits and our cultural influences, which is really to be damned, right? Just to be swept along. This is the flood the Buddha talks about being swept away by. You know, it's the flood of our, you know, the, the cultural force of greed and aversion and distraction. And, you know, it's so obvious. So we can ritualize things like generosity. We can ritualize things like uh, integrity or non-harming through some kind of commitment. In Buddhism, there's a, often a commitment, a commitment ceremony to integrity, to non-harming. In some traditions of Buddhism, taking the precepts, making this commitment to non-harming is really how you become a formal Buddhist, like a formal student of the Buddha, of the Buddhist teachings. Is you commit to the Buddha as a teacher, to these teachings, to the Sangha, to the people who are practicing these teachings, and you commit to the precepts. Okay, the Buddha says committing to non-harming to non-killing is essential, that you can't really develop a practice and be stealing and killing and misusing sexuality and lying and uh, you know, gossiping and intoxicating the mind. You can't be doing both. So I make this commitment. And then we can ritualize it because it's easy to forget it. It's easy to slide back into old habits. You know, so we ritualize it. And in the Buddhist tradition, 
you know, if you mess up, you just recommit. That's the point. It's a training. These precepts aren't like, then you're damned forever. It's always to our advantage to recommit every time we fall short, to start over again. Another one of these values, especially in Buddhism, that's ritualized in different ways, is the value, the human value of simplicity or renunciation. Because the movement toward freedom is a realization of the mind that's profoundly simple. We even use in Buddhism the word empty. Empty of the self-centered activity of greed and aversion and distraction. So renunciation or letting go or simplicity is a, a really powerful, important value. There's all kinds of rituals around this. For example, even for lay people, you know, we go on retreats for a day, a half day, for a weekend, for 10 days, three months, three years, monks and nuns, sometimes for lifetimes. There's this uh, commitment to simplicity. That's really what a retreat is. We leave behind the complications of worldly life or duties and responsibilities, and we come to a center, we, a retreat center or a monastery, and we've left behind for a period of time a lot of the worldly responsibilities. Sometimes we leave behind our hair, right? We leave behind our... Uh, like the kinds of foods we like to eat, and we just eat what is offered to us. We leave behind the control over our schedule and join the schedule of the community or the retreat schedule. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.